is the Starting Why Podcast. Here we ask entrepreneurs, actors, investors, innovative, and artists on the why. Why they are doing what they are doing, what motivates and drives them, and why can't they stop. We will start in five, four, three, two, one. Hey guys, welcome back to Starting Why with Joe and this time again with another Joe. Hey Joe. Welcome to our Joe. Hey, Joe. Where are you going with that gun in your hand? <laughs> Joe, can you introduce yourself a little bit to our audience? So my name's Joe Templin, and I am a human Swiss army knife. I have a very eclectic background, and I say eclectic as opposed to being a Renaissance man, because I can't draw a straight line even with a ruler, no matter how hard I try. I've got backgrounds in applied physics, martial arts, psychology, tax law, financial planning, behavioral economics, and to top it all off, I am an ultra runner and special needs parent. So I have a plethora of experiences that I can draw from and have drawn from in terms of building my own businesses and mentoring other individuals within the technology and financial spaces. When you've been talking about an ultra runner, I thought, well, I can also run for a mile, but I don't think that is what you have in mind, right? No, my friends joke that a marathon is a warm-up. So the longest run that I've done, I did 100 kilometers in October, and I was actually training to do 125 kilometers next week. But I uh, broke my leg and dislocated my ankle, and so my physiotherapist said if I ran before it healed, then I'd probably break it worse, and I wouldn't be able to run 100 miles on my birthday. So I'm in sort of uh, dry dock for a little bit. So that is something above 75 miles for uh, the metric-hating Americans out there. Yes, so 100 kilometers is 62.5 for the American audience. The 125 is roughly 75, so it's a little over three full marathons. I did never in my life finish even a half marathon. Disclaimer, I did not even try it. I'm not necessarily the running guy, but I do it from time to time. And when I do it, I'm really, really proud of myself if I could take over somebody who is rolling in a wheelchair uphill. That's called a kill, by the way, in races. When you pass someone. So it doesn't matter if it's a spectator or another runner or it's the little old lady sitting there on the park bench. It still counts. Even the park benches. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> I see. So, well, also maybe ultra marathons, long distance running. We talk about here about entrepreneurship and especially the mental framework. I can already see that you're a very interesting guy because you're also an entrepreneur. So that means. Some people are completely busy. Their whole life is blocked up as an entrepreneur. Some people are also running a marathon with that. You are the first entrepreneur I meet who runs ultra marathon, ultra long distances, plus is a special need parent. How do you manage to get all of that aligned into, let's say, 24 hours or less? So one thing I do is I drink a lot of coffee and I don't sleep that much. So that is actually a very good thing. I'm ADHD, so that helps in a lot of capacities because I can multitask. But what I do in terms of multitasking is how to maximize benefits. For example, kids need to do their homework. 
So I'll have them there sitting, doing their homework while I'm also doing the dishes or preparing dinner so that they get a good meal. And am I losing any quality from making the meal? No. But the kids know that food equals love. And so they're eating quality food and they understand how to cook because those are skills that as they're getting older and eventually when they go off to college and into the real world, they're going to need it. So teaching them those useful skills while I'm providing a benefit and I'm there making sure that they're getting their work done is one way to be able to do things. And sometimes I'll even be listening to a podcast or an audiobook on one of the subjects that I'm trying to improve on while I'm doing that because making sure that they're finishing their homework is not a constant effort might seem it at times, but it's really, okay, a minute here, minute there, and it's just being in their presence for them. So you can do things like that. You know, I went out for my run this morning. I was listening to a podcast. I was listening to uh, James Alshaw. It's actually another option where speaking to somebody. And I got some good ideas from that that I can then import into other areas. So it's learning what you can multitask on and what takes deep focus so that you can hammer on it and get it done. And with most of the stuff in our world, we have to remember that it does not have to be perfect. It's not like it was 30 years ago when my buddies were shipping games and they were on computer cartridges or disks. It had to be perfect when it went out the door. Now, if your code is not perfect, you can literally patch it two minutes later and through the internet and you know the app stores and all that, it can be updated essentially instantly. So it allows us to be able to have a much shorter iteration loop and be able to improve much quicker than what we had to deal with 15 years ago. You actually made me smile without knowing it. Today, I did a relaunch of the website of my other podcast. That is my main business. Um, basically, I was also going for this approach because I was set back through my back. <laughs> When I was out of business for a few days, I had to spend in bed just not being able to finish the website the way I wanted it. And basically, that's the approach I'm taking right now. It's 80% done. And I put it live because it replaces the old unstable one. And basically, I will be improving it constantly. And that iterative process is something that in computer technology we've adapted, but it actually in the writing world was basically the standard forever. I mean, you'd write a first draft and it would suck, as Ernest Hemingway said, all first drafts are shit. And then you'd edit it and it'd improve and then you'd edit it again. And 80% of the improvements come not from writing, but through the editing process. And so with writing, depending on the type of book, very often it's like you can write a chapter and be editing that while you're writing the next one. And you have this continuous feedback loop. And that's one of the ways that I ended up doing my last book was that it has month by month type things that are semi-independent. And so I had friends reviewing and editing January while I was writing February. And by the time I got done writing the book, it had already gone through 
several hundred hours of editing along the way of various people. And so what I actually sent off as technically my first draft was closer to a fourth or fifth draft because of the iterations that occurred along the way. And so this is one of the things that Eric Race talked about in the Lean Startup is shortening these feedback loops and continuously getting out there in MVP and making it slightly better and better and better. And part of the way that the human mind works is it's okay if you give them something crappy initially, as long as you are showing them that you're working to improve it. And so if you can make you know a whole bunch of tiny improvements that are noticeable to somebody over a couple of week period, they have no problem paying on a beta that very quickly becomes viable and they actually feel good about being inside the purple rope and being one of the early adopters or part of the exclusive club early. And so if I was to talk to a brand new first-time technical entrepreneur, if they're working in a space where that is a approach that makes sense, I would tell them, get something and start getting feedback from it immediately and iterate and get to the point where people are willing to pay you even at a discounted rate so that you can bootstrap yourself with real paying customers. I see that makes sense, but I also do believe that is something, as you said, that wasn't possible years ago. I actually remember those video games and cartridges, those discs, those floppy disks for the Amiga computers that I had. Basically, you could never get a hold of the most recent driver version. And it was always, you had like a box full of floppy disks. There were drivers on it. And then you exchanged the newest driver so that your computer somehow kept working. I really remember that. And today, when I'm done with all my stuff during the day, or at least everything I'm capable of during that day, I'll basically just start a little tool. It will update all my drivers and that's it. Snap of a finger. Sometimes it takes a little bit longer. And you can be doing it while you're doing five other things on the computer, as opposed to when we had to like update our old Word files and stuff. You'd put in the floppy disk and it would take 30 minutes. Then you'd have to come back and do the next one and the next one and the next one. It would literally take all day to update programs. Oh, yeah. And you could not do it overnight because then you would have to set or as I did, have to set the alarm clock and then get up at 2 a.m. Just switch floppy disks, this one out, the next one in, make sure it was the right one. Yeah, go back to sleep. <laughs> oh, and if you put in the wrong disk, oh, I haven't helped you. I did that once was do updating stuff for my dad. Good times. And so basically, that's the time we both remember our audience likely also remembers that one but this has changed quite a lot and you've been through a lot of that and my understanding is that you also now give your knowledge away as a mentor mentoring other entrepreneurs but before we get into your methodology where you're trying to teach them I would be very curious about how you got into that. How did you start mentoring? Was it like a formal program? Somebody approached it or did it just happen by accident? It was informal in a lot of ways in that it just evolved with me mentoring people in technology. 
I mean, some of my friends were early stage starting companies when I was building my financial services career. So we had different knowledge bases that we were working with, but we were both building. And so that was in a lot of ways what James N. Schultz was talking about, the equals, where we're playing similar but different games and we're trying to get better simultaneously. And some of these companies, one of them actually has been sold multiple times and Microsoft paid $67 billion for these guys last year. So I remember when it was Kartik and Guha programming out of their dorm room way back in the early mid-90s and seeing how they grew and we grew along together. And so when they were bringing in people within their organization that they were mentoring, I naturally was doing some of that. I was mentoring young people in finance, but a lot of the younger guys in my fraternity or my Taekwondo students, RPI, or people who I knew were starting businesses. So like, hey, you got a background in finance, what should we do? And that led to working with hundreds of small businesses and seeing some of the mistakes that they made but also learning what questions to ask so that I could give them foresight. Because when you see something play out once, it's surprising. When you've seen it play out a thousand times, you're like, oh, this is happening again. And here are some of the things to be concerned with. Here's some of the things that I've seen have worked really well. And so you can start distilling down lessons over time and this is part of the idea of the case studies that Harvard Business School uses, some of the idea of role-playing or running simulations. So there's a combination of real-world and academic that have unified in this. And so over time, it just became more and more people were seeking me out. And I've had to become very focused in terms of the ones who I will give more than a couple of minutes to. So I serve on the board of three different companies right now, Turin Technology, one's actually a coffee company. And the time that I spend with those CEOs, I have weekly meetings with them. And the one CEO of Catapult VR is like, all right, so you gave me my one good idea for the week. Thank you. And that's really what we focus on is having one good idea or avoiding one landmine each week and continuously broadening his vision and exposure as a CEO so that at 25, he's got many more years of experience than his peers in the business because he has exposed himself to people with gray hair like myself who have been there and learned to ask good questions. And simultaneously working with him, it focuses me on being able to understand what I'm saying and why even better. So one of the things that I have seen over the decades is that mentors generally grow as much as the mentee, just in different ways. You have been talking about a company being sold multiple different times now for multi-billion US dollars. Can you go a little bit more into detail what you did there and how it all started out? Because behind every like really big success, big idea, there's usually a very small and humble start. Yeah. So this was a couple of brothers who wanted to make video games. And so it's like the classic story. They actually had to have their parents sign the incorporation paperwork because they were too young to do it. I've seen that situation happen dozens of times. So they started programming some very basic games. They found a couple of friends who could program. 
and they joined the company and those were some of their early technology people. In fact, some of those guys stayed with them for 30 plus years and they started doing very little things, totally bootstrapped, just like uh, Bill Gates did with Microsoft and Paul Allen. So they went out and said, hey, we can program this for you. And so they got a couple of small contracts like that. Then they built some very basic math games because they're all nerds. Then from there, they built something bigger. You know, they literally stole some space on campus in a closet in the incubator center. And then they got some investment. They hired a couple more people. They made some mistakes. They had some hits and they grew. And over years, they went from being two guys programming out of their dorm room to 100 plus employees with 10 plus thousand square feet. Then they got acquired. Then, you know, they did even more significant stuff with the new company. Then they got acquired again. They did even more significant stuff. And eventually they exited stage right. And like many great entrepreneurs, they're like, hey, you know, let's take our experience here and start all over again, build something new. And that's what they did probably five years ago. And they're already reaching massive levels yet again. You're talking about here about the starts of Activision Blizzard. So their one company that they acquired, Vicarious Visions, I've known Guhan, Kartik, and Chris and Chuck for literally decades. I see. First, just simple statement, because I also realize, also including especially here on the podcast, if you want to make an argument, if you want to structure some thoughts, if you want to make it not intuitively, but a real argument really to understand something really to teach something really to get a sentence together somebody else understands with something you intuitively learn that is something you have to do as a mentor you have to do as a host a podcast host you also have to do as a teacher and do believe that is what you're referring to becoming better by being a mentor yes and so one of the things that I've learned is that a lot of these things that I learned organically in terms of making mistakes or being lucky or doing things, as Steve Jobs said, can only connect the dots looking back. So looking back at some of these things, what worked well, what didn't work so well, what are some of the themes and how can I put together questions and models around that so that if I bring these questions to somebody that I'm working with today, who's at a relatively early stage in their career or business, how can I ask them these questions or present these models so that they can in one month understand what it took me five or 10 years to get. And that is the beauty of having a good mentor is that you get the lessons, you get a lot of the insight, you get the questions that you have to ask yourself to develop the metacognitive awareness, but you get it without wasting the time. It basically comes down to first avoiding problems your mentor had and secondly, in saving time. Right. And one of the big things that the mentor needs to know is that the world today is different and that person that you're mentoring is not you. As some of my Taekwondo students, I remind them because I was reminded by my Taekwondo master, you're not me. Okay, my two Taekwondo instructors that I spent the most time with, one was six foot four and you know just a total badass. 
and the other one is five foot five, and even in his late seventies can bench press five hundred pounds. I'm five foot ten and scrawny, so I am not built like either of them, and so my training style and my fighting style is very different than either one of them, and so I make sure my students understand that you're not me. You're not going to train the way that I do. You know, you're not going to necessarily have the endurance or the pain tolerance that I have because I'm Irish. I can take all the pain in the world. So you need to develop your own way. But here's some of the things that I've learned that have helped me to understand my particular way quicker. And so if they can understand their body, if they can understand their training style, their fighting style, their management style when it comes to work, if they can shorten that curve, then they can get to the point where they are starting to truly grow and fly much quicker without the same amount of mistakes. If they can avoid a couple of pitfalls that I've fallen into over my life, that saves them a lot of trouble. Now, they're going to make their own mistakes because that's part of growing up, whether it's as a kid or a martial artist or a professional or an entrepreneur. But if you can make different mistakes, that means that you can also get different and better results. That is quite an interesting thought for everybody who is listening to this now and may also be an entrepreneur, an ultra long distance runner and doing some other stuff. If they also want to add to the workload and being mentor for other entrepreneurs, how would you recommend them to approach it? So there are Incubator centers and business labs and entrepreneur organizations on college campuses all around the world. One way to do it is to join up with something like that. Another way is that there's probably like business plan competitions or organizations for entrepreneurs or a software alliance was a group that I joined. These groups that are social, but also have an educational slash business component to them. Start going to those. Show up, have a beer, talk to people, see if you like the environment or not. Be yourself. So like when I would go to Software Alliance meetings 25 years ago, there were a couple of other finance people who were wearing a tie too, but I'd show up and very quickly I'd take the tie off and I'd be talking with my buddies and the other finance people who were showing up at these things would show up for three or four and then they're like, oh, there's no business here. While I was just there not to do business, but to learn and to interact with other people. And that's how I ended up getting some great relationships that have lasted decades because I was not there looking to get anything short term. I was not there looking for it to line my pockets. I was there to see what I could learn, who I could interact with and build relationships with over an extended period, and see how I could add value to others. And so having a giving mindset as opposed to a taking mindset, looking to be interactive and constructive as opposed to extractive, allowed me to be in a position where more value was created ultimately. And yeah, I got much smaller pieces of the pie, but when the pie is tremendously huge, everybody still wins in the end. It's more fun to win as a group or a team 
because there's more celebrations and highs associated with it. I understand. You've been also, when we talked before, uh, talking about that, as far as you know, every successful entrepreneur had a mentor as well? Yes. I have yet to find anyone, and there's going to be some exemptions to this, because so, there always are, but I've never personally met anyone who has had great success in any endeavor without having some form of mentor that either helped them or was somebody that was trying to keep them down. And so the reaction against that was studying what that successful person who try and keep you down did and learning from them to overcome them. So sometimes the mentor is the one patting you on the back and giving you guidance and advice. And sometimes it is the example or, you know, you can study and learn about somebody and say, I'm not going to do it that way. That is just as valuable in a lot of ways. When you look there for, for a mentee, if you want to be a mentor, would you recommend, as you said, to have somebody who thinks very much like you? Or is it your experience that you actually benefit more if this person thinks totally different than you do and therefore you have to completely rethink what you want to tell them? So actually, I look at some traits of them that go back to psychology. So there's four main traits that I look for. The first one is, are they a good human being? Because if somebody's not a good human being, if they're you know trying to harm others, if they don't have a at least a partial service focus, if they're just completely self-centered as opposed to other focused, I'm not going to work with them. So that's one of the big knockouts that I have. And I was talking with the manager of a big financial services firm about the people who become most successful long range in their environment. And it's the people who have the service focus, the focus on others, knowing that if they do the right things, they're going to be taken care of no matter what. It's that I'll take a smaller piece of a much huger pie than I need to be the star of the show. And, you know, it's a not a very good show in that capacity. So that's one knockout criteria that I have. And it took me a while to realize that because I worked with some not good people, have a lot of financial lessons that I learned, as in a lot of money I lost, like probably a million plus bucks because of it. But the other three come from psychology. One, Carol Dweck in her work showed that roughly 40% of the people have a growth mindset as opposed to a fixed mindset. So this is critical. If somebody does not have a growth mindset, I'm not going to work with them simply because I can give them everything that I have in terms of my experience, my knowledge, my time, my Rolodex and all that, and they're not going to succeed because they don't have that belief system that they can improve through hard work and others can too. So that open mindset, that growth mindset is critical. And then the other two components actually come from big five personality traits. And it's openness and conscientiousness, which if you listen to like Dr. Jordan Peterson analyze it or anybody else who has analyzed entrepreneurs and success, it's those two combination, having openness, so willingness to try, willingness to fail, to experiment, to do new things. That's a hallmark of entrepreneurs in general, but somebody has to make, I've seen some people who want to be entrepreneurs and they're wannabes 
because they want to say they're an entrepreneur. They want the rewards. They don't want to do the work. They don't want to have the exploratory nature. They don't just have this driving desire to learn new things and understand. And so my experience, people who are not very high on the openness factor tend to not have the mindset, the creativity to be successful. And the other one's conscientiousness, which is related to work ethic. It's doing the right job. I know so many people who want to be successful, but they're not ready to roll up their sleeves and do the work. I'm pushing 50 years old now, and I still work as hard as I did at 24 when I outworked everybody that I knew, even my friends who were entrepreneurs who were working you know, 60, 70 hours a week. I was working as many or more hours per week that they were. I still get up at 4.30 to 5 o'clock every morning and work out and study and train before I start my regular day. I write every morning. I learn. And when I come in and I work, I work my butt off. As we used to say on the farm, you know, if you don't work, you don't eat. And you keep working until the job's done because once the rain comes, guess what? You can't go on out in the field and do the work anymore. So having that openness and conscientiousness combination is a critical component to be able to be mentored because it means that you'll do the work and listen. So it means that you're coachable and are willing to put in the time in the gym, essentially, to achieve overall. And so those combinations combined with the open mindset from Dweck and the good human filter, that's what I look for in terms of people that I surround myself with, whether mentors, mentees, friends, business associates, clients, that's the main criteria that I utilize. That is quite already a good mental framework, I do believe, for being a mentor and how you approach it. Of course, how long did it actually take you until you did the first thing and then you had the right fitting mentee and it started out really to be a mentorship relationship between you and your mentee how long did it take like from the first contact to really being a mentor took it a year did it take longer so it's not something you can start with a snap no i'm actually pretty good at triaging and cutting people out so i'm also relatively blunt at times so if somebody has blown smoke up my butt in the first meeting they're like well i do i'm gonna do this i'm gonna do this i'm like well what have you done in the past you know why do you say that you know and i have no problem telling somebody in that first meeting look man your mindset's wrong you're just trying to make money or you're doing this you need to go do x y and z to be in a position to succeed here you know go do more market research you know if you're telling me you've got no competitors in the market that means that you don't understand your market You know, if you're saying that you're going to completely and totally change the world, unless you've got a radical idea in theoretical physics or biology or something like that, it's all variations of other things. Yeah, it might be innovative, but you're probably not going to change the world nor be a unicorn in the next six months. So I'm all for enthusiasm. I mean, I live on Castle in the Clouds in some ways, my friends say. But it's being able to say, okay, that castle is connected to the ground. How? And so if you can give people enough pushback at that and say, here's you know, some of the things that you're not considering, go figure this out. 
And if they come back like in a week and say, hey, I you know did this and I worked on this and da, 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 and it's like, okay, that's like the student sitting in front of the martial arts monastery and the masters ignore him for two weeks and he, they stay there and they keep coming back. It's like, all right, you can come on in now. So in terms of determining if somebody is going to be a mentor or a mentee, I eliminate a lot really quickly. And then they basically prove it out to me over a period of time that can vary from a few weeks to up to a year as to, yeah, all right, you've got the stick to itness, you've got the creativity, you accept guidance, you've got the right principles in your heart, you're doing what you say you're going to do, you're a man or woman of your word, as opposed to just blowing smoke. I see. We're now talking already more than 35 minutes. I would like to thank you very much right here and now. For everybody who'd like to learn more, we link down in the show notes to this podcast, your website, where everybody can learn more about what you're doing about your website and much, much more. Thank you, Joe. And this has been an absolute wonderful conversation. One of the things that those of us who are in our own little world that where we're trying to build something and we might be like a solopreneur or a small group, it's the opportunity to get outside of our normal bubble and interact with other people and have these grown-up conversations with somebody with a different perspective that allows both of us to grow. So thank you for giving me this opportunity today. Pleasure was all mine. Thank you very much and have a great day. And guys, as we said, go down here in the show notes and check out the links. Thank you very much. Joe, be excellent and grow today. I will.